What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. And today we are back with another episode of Reviewing the News. We kind of had to do a joint thing with May-June here. Because Cody's been busy, and he's been off on Alaskan adventures, which we're going to talk a little bit at the open here. And then we're going to do what we do, which is cover some of the headlines in the outdoor industry and just some of the stories that we think are worth bringing up and talking a bit about. That includes a really interesting debate and conversation about when a person can legitimately claim to have summited a mountain that's an interesting piece we talk about the ethos of guiding we talk about the surge in national park visitations and maybe most importantly we talk about ufos i mean don't you think it's time it's time right we needed to talk about ufos Anyway, that is just some of the stuff we cover here. We have a ton of book recommendations at the end of this conversation. We really enjoy this one, and we hope you do too. Now, public service announcement here. Just before we get going, I want to make sure you all know that tomorrow, over on our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast, we are dropping another edition of what we have come to simply call Bikes versus Skis. This is one of the strangest things we do every year. It's also kind of one of the most fun things we do. And I don't know how or why, but every year it's pretty interesting. And we just recorded part one of Bikes versus Skis about 24 hours ago. And I got to say, it's pretty fantastic. So anyway, if you are unfamiliar with this, this is where we kind of talk about which bike companies remind us of which ski companies and it i don't know it's strange but it ends up being oddly illuminating and mostly a lot of fun so subscribe to bikes and big ideas if you haven't already and then tomorrow get ready for part one of bikes versus skis okay and with that let's go ahead and now review the news with cody here we go Well, Cody, it's you. You're back. How are you today? And where are you today? I am doing good. I am actually at home, my home in Tahoe City, California. I think this is the first podcast we've recorded where I've been at home in maybe six or seven months. (laughs) Is that right? That hadn't even occurred to me. That's why I got a portable podcast set up. (laughs) Wow. Okay. Well, one... I'm glad you're home because that means you made it back. Yes. You know, by the way, you got to stop going and doing stuff because you keep throwing off our regular monthly reviewing the news series. It's really, you know, these adventures of yours are really getting in the way of this thing we're supposed to be doing and the people aren't having it. No, I know that there's uh, it's definitely thrown off our monthly schedule. It's been throwing it off all winter. We can maybe get back this summer. I'm thinking, I don't know. We're already, I don't even know what day it is. June. Oh, so God, we got to get July in like two weeks, but yeah, no, sorry. I mean, maybe when reviewing the news blows up to like, you know, top of the charts, then maybe I can quit my day job. But right now this is just a little side hustle. (laughs) 
I have to ask you, you know, you got to tell us at least a little bit. You know, the last time we were talking on this podcast, the people know you were soon going to be heading off to Alaska. All we know is you have made it back, which is a big deal. So tell us, you know, a little bit. You know, don't give us everything, but tell us a little bit. What do you want to tell us? Yeah, I know. I can't can't really tell everything. I mean, my job is to make like movies and episodes about it. So I'm not going to divulge everything, the whole story on a podcast. Maybe after the fact, I can give more details. But um, yeah, but like we went up to Mount St. Elias um, in Wrangell St. Elias National Park and uh, tried to uh, our attempt on climbing and skiing Mount St. Elias, which is... Um, second highest mountain in North America, um, and just renowned for its absolute gnarly nature to it. And it's unbelievable weather, like some of the worst weather on the planet from, uh, a lot of people I can hear from, but, um, we had, as I can say, it was one hell of an adventure. It, uh, Mount St. Elias lived up to its reputation. I can tell you that. Um, we didn't necessarily come back with a horror story, which is, there's a lot of horror stories from that mountain, which I'm uh, happy about, but we also still had our, our share of getting our asses kicked, um, by the, by the weather, by the mountain itself. And ultimately like, yeah, it was an adventure. I'm going to tell you that. And I'm really excited by it. Um, that mountain is one of the more special mountains I've ever seen. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of frequently tell people and then ask like, how'd it go? And I'm like, well, no one died. <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, that's a joke, but it's also a little serious. And, uh, you know, that, that, that mountain is serious. Um, I like to equate it to like, uh, the analogy I'm going to, it is like if Denali, uh, Denali is kind of like Everest. It's, uh, it's big, it's hard. Um, there's barely weather, but it's generally pretty straightforward. And Mount St. Elias is to, what k2 is it's kind of very similar it's a little shorter but when it really comes down to it is a lot harder a lot more technical there's a lot more objective hazards and you're dealing with even worse weather um so so yeah ultimately i'm stoked to be home it was an, an amazing amazing trip for many different reasons and everyone will get to see the full story this fall when we make a little mini movie episode about it yeah and so does this now kind of wrap things up for you for a while what do you do just you sit around and playing video games now is that life now yeah pretty much that's all i do just world of warcraft <laughs> all day long that's all i'm gonna be doing um yeah no now it's coming into editing season um actually we've got a teaser um dropping tomorrow and kind of an update because we didn't release any episodes this winter which was atypical to our pattern before we would always kind of release as we go but we had such a slow start um that ultimately it was looking like our first episode was going to come out in like late may or middle of may and it was kind of like well let's just save everything up for for this fall so we got a teaser kind of updating a lot of people on YouTube and followers on Instagram that says as much as long, uh, along with a little bit of just highlight footage, get a little people stoked for what's going to come out this fall. So it's pretty much editing for the, the majority of the summer, um, and getting things back and ready. And then I'm already training. I've already started training program. So, cause well, and also just having fun, getting back on the bike again. And uh, I'm not going full uphill athlete program this year. I'm going to take a little bit of uh, uh, what I learned from last year and then bake it into some things I learned from this winter. And so, so yeah, that's pretty much the summer. 
All right. Well, appreciate the update. And again, glad everybody's, you know, back safe. It's a big deal. Let's review the news. This first story, you know, when I first saw it, I immediately texted you. And I think you were like, dude, I just finished reading that. This is amazing. Yes, we need to definitely talk about this. Do you want to kind of explain or take the lead on this first one here? Yeah, sure. No, this uh, this story was pretty fascinating and it was pretty amazing to kind of see this sort of almost like thought leadership and idea um, ideas coming out of the New York Times. But it was also done by John Branch, who is we all I've, we've talked about him on here. I think he's one of the best mainstream outdoor journalists in the world. Um, and he he does an amazing job when ta- uh, talking about subjects that he's not necessarily that familiar with. I mean, he seems to be pretty familiar with the, the climbing world um, and and the mountaineering world. And this topic is as such. But um, he went into this uh, article that let me pull up the headline and um, the headline says only 44 people have reached the summit of all 14 of the world's 8,000 meter peaks, according to the people who chronicle such things. Or they say now, maybe no one has. And the article itself goes into this really interesting debate between what is the summit and what actually counts in mountaineering. And it talks about one particular mountain, I believe it was Manislau, um, that the summit that mountaineers kind of say is the summit, the end of the climb, isn't technically the true summit. It's like maybe a hundred yards short and about like 20 or 30 feet lower than the actual summit. And it goes, John talks about these like uh, kind of historians or journalists. They're almost like they're the ones cataloging uh, a lot of these climbs, bringing up this question of like, wait a minute, there's people that have gone and done all of the 8,000 meter peaks, but they were stopped 40 feet short of, of Manislau. And even at that, they've stopped short of the summit of Kachanjunga because of the fact it's a sacred peak and you know, the, the locals really don't want people to stand on the summit because it's disrespectful to their culture and their religion. So have anyone actually truly done all the 8,000 meter peaks? And it brings up these really interesting topics like what, what counts? And he did, he did a really good job on it. And it personally, like my, it goes into, brings up my own ethics and mountaineering and ski mountaineering, which is, I honestly don't believe there should be hard, fast rules in the mountains. I think there should be ethics and responsibilities, but I don't think there should be these rules that go into like, okay, you were 30 feet short of the summit, but all mountaineers kind of say like, ah, you get to this point that consider a summit. I actually agree with that because I don't want this system of, of rules to impose themselves on the mountains. Because to me, when you bring in hard, fast rules, you start looking at the mountains purely of sport and ego, as opposed to experience. Um, you know, I look at climbing, um, like rock climbing in general, and I actually had this debate with Alex Honnold recently. Um, one of the things with rock climbing I've noticed as a skier, there's a lot of hard, fast rules in rock climbing. There's everything from what is a red point, a pink point, and all these little details of what counts as a free. And if you put your finger through, a, you know, a bolt, then all of a sudden it's an aid climb. And 
And I noticed when I first started getting into climbing that there was almost a little bit of a negativity within the sport and quite a lot of almost like gossip and muckraking and a little bit of shit talking between uh, between groups um, saying certain climbs don't count that mountaineer that didn't count and whatnot. And I just I was like, this is not. I don't know. This is not why I climb. Um, I climb because I find it enjoyable to go out and do. And then I bring up, brought that into skiing. And I thought the same thing. I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't ski and climb and ski mountains to outright be like, I did exactly this. Sure. We can have those goals, like the goal that I have, but ultimately like I want to focus on the experience. Um, and sometimes goals get you to that experience, but sometimes you don't necessarily need this hard, fast rule to come back with and be like, you could have one of the most amazing adventures and you you 20 feet short of the summit and you're like yeah we summited and and then everyone's around me like no you didn't no you didn't and it starts like kind of shit talking your experience and degrading your own experience and that was what i what i don't like about rules so uh, there's a quote uh, from someone I did not expect to say this, but Reinhold Messner kind of agreed. He was like, yeah, we don't necessarily need to have these hard, fast rules. It's about the experience. And sure, you can have your goals, but like what you do on the mountain is your own art and your own experience. And it was a pretty fascinating read. You know, listening to everything you just said, it's like, yeah, that makes sense. It does seem like where things really start, like it's like the crack in the dam, I guess, is that when people start kind of putting this on the resume for a number of different reasons, right? It's like whether they're an athlete and it's like, hey, you know, look, I'm an athlete and I need to be doing certain projects and sort of either needing to or wanting to be able to claim certain things or guides, right? Who want to have this list of like, look at all the things I've done. I need to kind of establish credibility here. And and I understand like why people sort of want to and often sort of need to claim stuff. But it seems like that is at least part of the reason where this tension starts to get. And then we get into what I don't really think is super necessary, but we see a lot of it is the policing by others in the community. Or, I don't know, man. It, it gets gross pretty fast. It does. And and it can get gross both sides of it. Totally. Like the person who did the thing or almost did the thing or the communities, and we start getting into these gross and ugly battles that get real far apart of everything that you just talked about, about this incredible experience that a person may have had. Yeah. And no, that that's one of the interesting things I've seen about it. And I, I kind of agreed, like there's certain people like professionals, like myself, I should be probably held to a higher standard than your average person. The, the problem with that is what I saw in climbing early on was the debates end up being like pretty high end and pretty public. So like if people are calling me out for say what they don't agree was a true summit or a true ski of the 50 or whatnot, that debate gets really elevated because, you know, people love debates and love watching it in media. And then that becomes kind of the, the, the culture around it. So then others might feel the same way that being like, Hey, like, Cody are called out for this. So like, I gotta, if I want to try and do that, I got to do it a little bit further than he did. And you start creating this culture of kind of rules. So, but I also agree with it on the other side of things. Like you can't be like, 
Colin O'Brady, who is claiming to, you know, cross Antarctica unsupported. And then people are like, wait, you did kind of half of it. You did sort of the land and you did it on a road that was groomed. So that's not necessarily supported. So, you know, and that's where I kind of just line on like, you know what, like instead of rules, we just need to have like real honesty when it comes to these things and like kind of ethics when it comes to it and when it comes to this summit debate like yeah the manislau you're are you're not on the true summit but ultimately the mountain kind of community has decided like yeah you don't necessarily need to go there for it to count and i do think like that's where the community as a whole I don't want it to police itself, like you said, but ultimately be the kind of like the judge of it. Um, I just always try and push back from the extremes. Like I don't want there to be some governing board that is like dead set, that counts, that doesn't count, that counts. You kind of want that, you do want the debate to be the decider of it and the culture to be the decider of it on, on either end. You don't want to have professionals claiming fake things. Um, but then you also don't want it to be like hard, fast, dead rules that create the mountains, uh, make the mountains more of a, a pure sport that you have to do it in this certain way for it to count. So um, ultimately, like you said, it gets messy really quickly. And I don't think there's a great, there's no great like takeaway from it of like, here's, okay, here's what it should be. Because ultimately, like we do, all of us go into the mountains for kind of different reasons. And ultimately, like, we kind of got to respect that. That's actually really well said. We go for different reasons. Because I, I was about to ask you, like, if you peered into your crystal ball, say, 20 years from now, will anything have emerged along these lines? What do you actually predict happens? Or in 20 years from now, we'd be having the same conversation about, yeah, it's kind of messy and who knows, you know, do you do you see things moving? Either some ethic gets formed in the communities, not a regulating body or something like that, but we do get a bit clearer or we just come to accept certain standards or norms. They're just going to well up, I suppose. What do you predict? Yeah. I predict we're still going to just be having this debate. Obviously, it may be on little different subjects of one and whatnot, but ultimately, like I think that this sort of debate of what counts, what doesn't count, the rules and the ethics, we're probably going to still be having it. Um, you know, like you look at the history of of climbing, and they were having these debates 40, 50, 60 years ago. The the debate between clean climbing ethics and bolting stuff, and it was only in the like 80s and 90s that bolting really came into a thing, and um, the, you, you look at the history of the, um, American Alpine club and the access fund and some of these things that were like central to the debate between, can we bolt cliffs? Can we not? And yeah, that now has kind of resolved itself. We're kind of, we can bolt things, certain areas you kind of can't bolt, but those are like community guidelines. Like if you were going to Donner Pass and go climb and you go to put up bolts, they're going to get chopped off because the community kind of says like, all right, we're good. And the the heads of the, the state up in Donner, those guys that are the most respected, those guys and women that have kind of been the developers of that area over the years are like, no, no more bolts in this zone. Um, maybe that zone we can do it because climbing has progressed so much that people can climb there now let's put bolts up so i think we're just going to keep having this this debate and i'd rather have the debate than have a governing body and i'd rather have the community ultimately 
call out someone like a Colin O'Brady or even myself if I were to ever try to, you know, feign that I did something that I didn't for my own personal gain. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I don't want more rules within the mountains. Um, but like, like I kind of said before, there's I go in the mountains both for reasons that I love the experience. I love the adventure, but I'm also have a career out of it and, and, and I'm a professional. So if I were to try and feign stuff, I should be called out for it. So, um, ultimately again, this article is just like really brings up these really interesting points and I suggest everyone read it. And it's, it's one of those good New York times interactive features with, uh, the, you know, a lot of the graphics and video that really show you what you're talking about. So really good article. And it kind of makes you think, what do you, what do you go in the mountains for? What do you think counts? Why, why, why do you want to do what you want to do in the mountains? Yep. Yeah. Why are you going? Which is a decent segue into the next thing we wanted to talk about. Will Gad wrote a piece for Explore magazine. The kind of title of the piece uh, is Dear Mountain Guests, Will Gad pens an open letter about some hard mountain truths. First of all, Will's great. I love Will. You know, he basically is kind of laying out the kind of symbiotic relationship, I guess might be the word, between a mountain guide and the people who hire a mountain guide and go out into the mountains. And um, I don't know, on the one hand, I, I just hadn't quite read something like this before. So forgive me if many wonderful similar things exist out there in the world, but it just is a really thoughtful piece by Will on sort of like, hey, folks, this is actually a two-way dynamic here. It's not like hiring a tour guide, right? where you just show up and you get in some golf cart and then you get kind of tooled around and someone's just talking about the history of, you know, a city or a national park or something. And Will just does a really good job of talking about like, hey, you know, here are my top priorities as a guide. And this is what I need from you, the person who might be hiring me or another guide. I'm going to leave it at those very broad brushstrokes for now. But what did you want to say about this piece or what kind of jumped out to you? Yeah, it was almost to your point of like you, you hadn't read stuff before. Right? So I'm almost like I lived this. So it was kind of like, OK, yeah, yeah, no, I get it. But then it kind of made me think. I was like, well, yeah, that's because you spend a lot of time with guides. You know guides. You understand this world. And this just all makes is like pretty obvious information to myself. Um, but then I started thinking about it, like, yeah, this is like what you need to read after you, uh, sign a waiver to go climbing or go skiing with a guide, because ultimately like it is more what will talks about in these points than it is. Yeah. I'm going to drag you up to the top and then we're going to summit and you can take a picture of yourself so you can show your friends and say you climbed and skied the grand Teton. Um, and you know, I really think this was like almost like a little bit of a, he probably had some recent clients that were kind of 
asshole-ish and we're like not wanting to turn around and just not helping and make decisions and just being kind of like almost like lump bodies trying to drag them up to the the top of a mountain and it's like no like we we're actually a team i'm the most experienced member of this team and i will keep you safe but for the most part we're still a team um so i found it in that regard of being like oh yeah step outside of yourself for a second and be like this is actually really good information for people to have to hire guides um i like I'm amazed by guides and mountain guides and like, I don't think I could ever truly be a mountain guide because of the work it takes and the, the, the level of patience and understanding and having to work with clients. Um, it's really, really hard job. I mean, you are essentially bringing people into dangerous environments and completely responsible for their safety. Meanwhile, you also are trying to get them to the top of a, of a peak or down a certain line or, yeah, ultimately complete some sort of goal for them um and those are really hard things to balance between safety and seeking the summit and you know we know as people that climb and ski mountains like it's not always summiting and you should be turning around a ton and there's a lot of people that oh we can go out on wednesday and then wednesday doesn't work so sorry but that's just ultimately what it goes with the mountains so i'm i'm always impressed with guides um i would love to see more of this stuff kind of out there I guess and that's when I kind of realized like yeah I guess most people that go into something like a guided trip don't have this basic knowledge that Will's trying to put out there um, so that they can be more successful both in terms of coming home at the end of the day and also summiting um, yeah really uh, you know I, again it's just like guiding so hard and I can see this piece as being kind of just a reactionary thing to like maybe culture shifts of, of clients right now or maybe it's just like we're yeah they're getting more beginners out there trying to get to the summits of things so um, I, I suggest everyone definitely click this link and read it if you ever are thinking of a guide and I also think if you're ever thinking of wanting to climb big mountains and it scares you hire a guide they're unbelievable at what they do so um, I would love to see more guide culture and more guiding in, in the states because um, they they're really good for um, expanding mountain knowledge and keeping people safe yeah well done Will check it out everybody where you want to go Oh, so this goes, I want to go into a discussion that you kind of had recently. It's almost like a reactionary to uh, some news that you were talking about, um, the expansion of indoor ski areas. So you did the, the podcast and I just listened to it. I was on a bike ride the other day um, about the Alpine X unveiling plans for a national rollout of indoor snow sport facilities. And it really definitely got me thinking a lot about like, wait, what is the potential of indoor ski areas and kind of is this a, a could this solve some of the problems that we have within skiing, both in terms of climate change and affordability, access, development, all, all those kind of things. It really kind of got me thinking. I mean, how the conversation sounded pretty interesting on your side. You know, this is stuff I mentioned in my conversation with John from Alpine X that I was like, we have talked about this on the Blister podcast and by which I meant specific conversations with you on this podcast, right? Like, how do we address this? And I just hate when we constantly bring up topics and rarely get to sussing out or vetting potential solutions. 
And so that was a big reason why I wanted to have this conversation with you know, Alpine X and just hear the vision, hear how they're thinking about these things, you know, because it's just fucking bullshit. If we just are like, oh yeah, yeah, affordable housing or like, yeah, skiing, boy, super unaffordable sport, you know, man, we don't have enough diversity. It's like, cool, well, let's figure this out. So I was really just curious to see, you know, go into conversations with people who might allegedly be offering a solution or claim to be those were some of my primary interests for kind of having that whole Alpine X conversation in the first place. And um, I actually do think that there could be something there. I think there is something there. I think it will all come down to the execution of these things. But a couple of the things that really do stand out for me are just like people are doing in indoor climbing gyms now, the ability to go to a to an indoor facility and literally do things like click in and out of a binding, I honestly think is a big deal because I think that people get out on natural mountains in weather or in no visibility and they just fell maybe right under a chairlift and it's really just embarrassing and frustrating. And I think it's a weird thing we do like we don't have a very good onboarding process for people to get into these sports. So I think being able to go to that center and just gain some familiarity before you go out to the mountain strikes me as a good thing in the way that it seems like that's a pretty valuable thing. If again, coming back to the indoor climbing gym versus climbing outside, you know, John didn't get very specific about price points. Um, in our conversation, and you know, this isn't this doesn't start tomorrow. And he does mention there will be kind of dynamic pricing, but I think that if this does become an affordable way to get some people to just check it out, I think that's another good thing. So I'll I'll shut up for a second, but those were just a couple of my thoughts on that. No, I totally agree with you. And you kind of immediately think about the indoor climbing gyms and the success that we've seen in the sport of climbing with indoor climbing. You're like, whoa, can this be our indoor climbing? And, you know, there's a few things that I say, yeah, it can be. And also, no, there's no possible way. Um, I do think like, yeah, the, you know, the ability for someone in yeah, Northern Virginia and Fairfax to who isn't a skier, uh, families aren't skiers or um, just just like, hey, like I can maybe try it out. We could do a class trip, you know, those kind of things where it's like 20 bucks a head and people five bucks a head to go to rent gear and they can try out skiing for the first time. It, that I do think is a is a good thing. Um, one of the downsides of it, and I don't see it ever having the success of indoor climbing, is there's not unlimited progression. So we're speaking of this as a very entry point kind of thing, a beginner level kind of introduction to the sport, which I think it has some merit. The problem with it, it to me is that it may not hook you because of it being in a giant refrigerator, being indoors in a weirdly lit place and being on a 10 degree slope. And, you know, after let's say you, you pick it up and after you do um, 20 laps, 
you you can't progress anymore. You you've maxed out the the possibilities of turning down this thing, maxed out the possibilities of how fast you can go and the sensations you can have. And then at that point you're not having an outdoor experience. Maybe that'll push someone to want to go, but to the next step, but then ultimately that next step is still very expensive. Whereas with climbing, like climbing can be both a very beginner friendly thing. You can go in, never have climbed before, not even have a partner get on a VO boulder and which is almost like a ladder and go up it and jump off and be like, well, that was kind of fun. I'll try that V1. And then you can kind of work your way up. Um, and then you can really get really good in a climbing gym to the point where you can become an expert level climber before ever having step foot outdoors. And then you dream about like, maybe I'll go out West, go to Colorado, go to these epic climbing zones and try that outside for the first time. Um, and the thing with climbing gyms is both beginners and experts go to them. The best climbers in the world go to climbing gyms all the time. Whereas the best ski experts in the world would never go to an indoor climbing skiing area. So that's where I see like one of the, the, the hangups with it. And I wonder how they could modify or make like, Hey, how do we make this more of a progression? So more time could be spent here. It's not one trip. Oh, I'm introduced to skiing. I learned how to put on my bindings, but I'm never going to go again. What is that hook? Um, to, cause to me, like, you know, the, um, the guy on your podcast talked a lot about like safety and all the, all these kind of things in a controlled environment, but yeah, that's great. People want safe, um, kind of experiences, but they also do. I do think a lot of people, we have this desire to push ourselves a little bit. We have a desire to have this wow experience, whether that's going down a steeper run than you've ever gone before, or going to the top of a mountain and looking off, you know, 3000 feet below you into the most incredible view you've ever seen and standing at the highest point you've ever had in your life. We look for these wow experiences. We look for them in like on roller coasters and theme parks, people like, you know, strap into a roller coaster and come off of it scared. But then they're like, wow, that was so fun. Even though, you know, it's ultimately safe and controlled. So that's where the one thing I don't see with it is like, how do we, how do you, make it so people can walk away from an indoor ski area saying wow to themselves, I'm hooked. Mm -hmm. And I think to John's credit, right, I, I kind of tried to push him a little bit about the whole like, can you envision a future where people just and only ski inside and don't go outdoors? And he never, he never went for it. He's like, no, that's not what we're doing here. And I, I think one, I think that's the right answer. I also kind of respected that, that he wasn't like, oh yeah, totally. We'll have this place, this, these facilities will be so amazing that there will be no need any longer. He never, he never positioned it that way. So again, to me, the only thing I would push back on is where there might be the opportunity to really progress is people interested in rails and jumps. I mean, that element of it and where you can learn a ton of body control and the rest, you know, I don't care to say that we're going to see this new trend, but I also don't want to be too quick to dismiss it either, because I think you heard a lot of old school climbers talking about all these kids roll, ripping around on plastic inside. That's not really climbing and you're not going to learn the mountains the way if that's what you're doing. And it's like, that is a kind of 
tired argument that hasn't exactly borne out. So I would be a little reluctant. I mean, we're not going to see indoor skiing facilities on every corner in the way that we kind of have started to see climbing gyms, not on every corner, but almost. There just won't be. That's not going to scale. Fast forward 20 years. You don't think that we could see an Olympian, probably park skier, who's like, I lived in Virginia or in some urban center and used to go five times a week. I'm not, I'm not betting against that. Yeah, no, I, I, that would be, I'm not going against that either. I mean, look at Buck Hill in Minnesota. There's it's like a 300 foot trash heap and there's like Lindsey Vons from there and Christina Kosnick's from there. So like there's some good skiers that come out of tiny, tiny hills. So no, and that that is the ultimate goal with it. And I don't want to dismiss it entirely either. Like I'm going to sit and watch it and uh, I hope it, I hope it's a solution. I also am not going to, you know, put all my chips on it. So but but I agree. I love to come out of these discussions because quite often we come out of it just going like, I don't know exactly, but like to come into it with like, Hey, here's a potential person trying to solve this problem. Um, so I, I loved the conversation. I love the sentiment with it. I have hope for it. I also, you know, we'll, we'll see. So yeah, TBD for sure. All right. Where are we going? Um, so kind of as soon as I got out of the mountains, which was interesting because I was in a national park and in a national park that is bigger than the size of Switzerland is what I learned. This is how big Wrangell St. Elias National Park is. And uh, I was in this park with absolutely nobody. This is absolutely you're in the middle of nowhere. And as soon as I got out, I started just reading all these all these articles about a surge in national park visitation, um, surging over not just just 2020 because obviously national parks are mainly closed but over 2019 so 30 to 100% jumps in visitation and just overcrowding in national parks um, there's been tons of articles about it i linked to just the cnn article you could pretty much do a giant deep dive on it um, the main article that hit me was i believe it was an outside article um, i got to maybe pull it up but uh talked about this surge in visitation in moab and it brings up some of the problems of, um, you know, one, the park's closing at 9 a.m. because they've already reached max visitation, two to three hour car lines to try and get into them. But then the main problem being that there's no campgrounds for a lot of people. So people are in Moab, you know, camping on the side of the road, go driving up dirt roads and then disperse camping all over the place, camping illegally at that um, and then setting illegal campfires, which have then turned into the main source of a fire down in the LaSalle's that is currently burning one of the 50 classics, Mount Tukunukovitz, because someone was obviously in Moab trying to go to National Park, couldn't find parking, camped, started a fire, and ended up starting a big forest fire. So some of the the downsides of this, and now there's been a lot of debate on who's who's to blame. What does this mean going forward? Is this trend going to continue? Are we going to see national parks overrun? Do we need permit systems, reservation systems? And it's just kind of this whole thing is blowing up right now because of the fact that uh, 2021, people can finally travel and they're probably not traveling internationally. So they're just going to national parks left and right. So what do we do? You know, like, again, this goes back to what we were just talking about. I don't know exactly, but I do. I don't know what the exact solution is. Um, you're seeing different parks handling in different ways. Um, but I will say, like, the I'm seeing the fingers being 
pointed a lot on who's to blame for this. Um, you know, people love to hate on influencers. So a lot of influencers are getting uh, the finger pointed at them uh, being like, oh, they're taking pictures of national parks and glorifying this outdoor work lifestyle and hashtag van life. Um, <clears throat> they're the ones to blame. But you're like, really? Like to see a 100% jump in visitation on Moab is because of Instagram accounts. I don't think that's that's account for it. But what I do see from it is ultimately like this was the national parks were built for like they paved these things they put in roads they put in manicured hiking trails they put in signs they as much as they were protecting against development development national parks also developed the hell out of these parks to have visitation so ultimately like if you're going to go to like edward abbey style of of thought here being like no you ruined the park and the national parks are to blame for this amount uh, surge in visitation because ultimately they were created to do this how they handle it from here on out i don't know um you know there's now like we're seeing reservation systems for climbing in uh el cap in yosemite and now that's bringing up a huge huge debate um you know people i've already seen trying to get into rocky mountain national park but they've already had a reservation system they didn't know about it so they travel there and get turned around um like you just you you start to get into these weird territories of like wait these national parks are public land they're meant to be uh, they were developed to be visited and now we can't even necessarily visit them because too many people are visiting them um it's a it's a weird debate and kind of it kind of does suck because ultimately like we've commodified these places and now they're getting exploited because they're a commodity let me back up for just a second and like zoom us out we have spent a lot of time as a society over the last say maybe five years in particular, 10 years, you know, still this has been a a thing where it's been like kids never go outside. They're only inside playing video games and staring at their phones, right? So we have complained about that and what that's doing to kids. And this is totally unhealthy. And, you know, we all used to run outside and play all day when we were kids. And now look at the youth, right? Well, okay. So now we've got more people going outside and spending time, at least in this case, in national parks, which on the one hand seems like that might start to serve as a nice antidote to the other thing we were just complaining about. You know, and I would love to believe that an experience, it is not given, it is not guaranteed, but I would still like to believe that somebody who maybe, you know, is, you know, living in more of an urban environment and doesn't have opportunities to see and experience places like a Yellowstone or whatever, that this can be an, you know, a meaningful moment for them. But it's like we were complaining about people being indoors too much, and now we're complaining about them being outside too much. And now, specifically on the issue of the national parks, you know, I definitely think there is a good reason to raise a question about how much we've developed those parks, how easy we've made the access in terms of all the paved roads and all the rest and the handrails everywhere. You know, we have definitely sort of defanged these places 
I want us to get to a better spot than just bitching about everybody being inside and staring at their phones and then complaining about everybody going to these beautiful places. So you're on the spot. Come up with our way to thread this needle here. Well, the spot is that if you you are the kind of person that is like going to Glacier National Park and driving up the going to the sun road and then you park your car and look off of it and then you turn around and drive out of there, then yeah, like too many people. But ultimately, like to me, like that's not a wild experience. It's not an outdoors experience. That's just uh, go up in your car and look at the view. So honestly, if it's uh, there's a lot of traffic to get there, like it doesn't bother me too much because ultimately if you're in Glacier National Park, you know how big it is and how wild it is and how easy it is to not see a single person. Um, you know, the one time I went to Yellowstone National Park, um, I was there with Elise and we were there in September. We thought it wouldn't be too crowded at that time of year. It was absolutely jam packed. It was hard to get camping sites, but I remember we parked our car, started walking off the, the side of the road and I didn't see a single soul. Like we were, two miles away from the road and there's nobody. So ultimately like, you know, one good thing is for the preservation of the park itself, like people are just sticking to the roads and sure there's traffic jam uh, to get into it. And, you know, it can create these issues like what we saw in Moab, but ultimately like people are generally in the non wild areas. So for the preservation of the wild areas, it doesn't bother me too much. And if you want to have a wild experience, you really still can have in these places. So it's almost to me like it's it's complaining about crowds coming to Disneyland and two hour waits for the line. But meanwhile, you know, you can go to some other little secret park around the side that just takes a little bit of harder access to get to <laughs> and isn't so just like a paved road with, uh, you know, drink vending vending machines on the side of the road so like ultimately like we're kind of complaining about a lot of nonsense in my opinion i mean you and i and probably the listeners of this podcast are more the people that are going to go to a national park and go for a, a big hike or go for uh, uh overnight or go for a climb or do something a little bit more wild than just drive around and you know point at a buffalo that you see from the side of the road and take a picture without leaving your car so to me for our user cause like it's i think it's actually not too big of a deal and we know how to res get reservations we know how to look ahead we we live in this world for you know ultimately again what the point of the parks is is to preserve these areas for generations like kind of actually still preserving it even though there is roads built through them there is campgrounds built through them there is you know, handrails, like you said. So I kind of think it's a little bit of a, um, a big debate about nothing in many ways, because yeah, like ultimately, like, yeah, like what we're bitching about people being inside, we're bitching about too many people outside, like, where's the middle ground? You're like, well, I can still go outside and have the experience I want to have. And a lot of people can as well. Um, if the experience they want to have is driving in their car, then sure, they're gonna have to wait a little bit longer. But whatever to me um that's ultimately and you know you can argue that that's not really even getting outside by driving up a road and pointing out stuff so um yeah that's my take it's interesting and i think we come back once again to this kind of perpetual need to just keep educating and so if that is really you know encouraging people to like come at off-peak times 
everything you've just said, you know, this sounds like the very stereotypical thing and I think not inaccurate thing about people want to roll up, point at some natural, you know, feature that they've seen, you know, uh, in a top eight most beautiful things in the United States or wherever in the world and then get back in their car and kind of go home, check that off the list. I think that just continuing to sort of try to bang that drum of there is more to the experience and what might that look like or even drilling home that understanding of like, hey, it's a it's a crowded entrance, but once you get past that, there can still be, you know, wildness found or real solitude found. And I don't know. I think um, we've we've got these places. I'm glad we have these places. And I don't think there's ever a time where the education part of this stops, right? And so that's just going to be a perpetual thing. And, you know, you and I live in places where we see a lot of tourism and that's important for our local economies. And yet there just needs to be that educational component you know, what it means to come into these places, how to be good stewards while you're here. And for those of us who live in some of these places, how to, I don't know, be accommodating and kind of do our part in this whole dance and this whole dynamic as well. And it's tricky stuff. And there will never come a time when we we stop these conversations, right? Um, where the education's kind of over and we just all unthinkingly do our thing like it will never be that way ever no and i i I completely agree with your point and i think i'm always going to be like air on the side of like the slow side of things of educating people and yeah we're going to still have things like we like i mentioned moab which is like someone starts an illegal campfire and it's going to burn stuff and that absolutely sucks um i mean that is a rule it is illegal but we need to just keep educating people on it like you don't need to have a campfire here's how to put out your campfire um because like yeah we're we're seeing more surge in the outdoors and the only thing that we're going to be able to do is to educate people so that they're responsible for their own their own selves and the the wildland around them so sure it can you know make experiences not as you know as clean and as as filled with solitude as in the past but ultimately this is where the world is certainly going um and i would rather instead of creating more rules and more permits and all that stuff is like we just got to keep educating people where to next? Um, Blevins Corner. So a lot of stuff about he's been writing about, and this one was kind of almost synthesized at all, which was that um, he's been writing a lot about affordable housing and mountain communities. And one of the, the things I read about and it has been a debate this winter, but I didn't see you get a ton of play, which was the unionization of ski patrollers and certain areas voting on trying to unionize. And so uh, Breckenridge um, in Colorado, their ski patrol just... Uh, announced that they uh, unionized by a vote of 43 to 42. And, you know, I can't say I'm an expert at unionization. You know, I, I looked at like the, like we all kind of looked at the unionization drive for the Amazon warehouse in Alabama and a lot, you know, you have the president saying like, yeah, go for it. And then it doesn't get voted for. So I'm like, there's, there's a lot of dynamics to unionization I'm not familiar with. But ultimately what I am seeing with what we're seeing in mountain towns is that, unionization of ski patrollers is kind of like what we're going to see more of because mountain towns are becoming less affordable and you have 
quite often in mountain towns, a lot of jobs are filled in by young people in turnover, whether it's bumping chairs, working in restaurants, or just their high turnover rate jobs. But when it comes to ski patrollers, you can't have a high turnover rate. You know, the Department of Homeland Security, the, the only way you can throw a bomb in a ski area is by working on a ski patrol for five years. So there's no way you can have ski patrollers being having a high turnover job, you know, plus you don't want some first year there rescuing and re- you and being on the, the uh, responsible for the avalanche safety of it. So we're seeing uh, ski patrollers fighting for higher wages. Like, you know, ski patrollers make between 14 to $17 an hour and do a really hard and dangerous job. So seeing this unionization and starting to see success with it has been pretty interesting because, you know, we haven't seen that in the past, even though like ski patrollers haven't been paid much forever. And but now I think it's becoming more and more unaffordable to live in ski towns. We're going to see this happening more and more. I don't currently have much to add to that. I think unions are a really complicated matter, which you've kind of already said. And I don't want to speak on this when I I don't know enough about the kind of specific issues, right? That w- like when we got to a 43 to 42 vote, you know, why Almost half the people voted against, you know, so, but what there is no question about is we need passionate, educated professionals in these roles, right? In this job uh, of, of ski patrol, and they deserve to be compensated as passionate, educated professionals. Yeah, I'm going to mostly right now, all I can say is I'm going to be really interested to see how this kind of progresses. I doubt this will be the last time we're kind of talking about this question. I think we can probably all agree that we need to be creating the right dynamics when it comes to either housing or pay to make sure that we've got great people in these positions and that we're attracting great people to these positions. Yeah. I mean, and it makes sense. Like how, how are you going to, push back on the primary employer and the primary driver of your economy in a town when it's just one ski area and how are you going to you know get a living wage and actual benefits and the only way is through unionization it seems like um and obviously like this puts like Vale's statement in this so they were disappointed with this vote so it puts them in a tough place, um, whether that's in negotiations, whether that's the fear of strike, you know, like Breckenridge patrollers now could in a union just tomorrow be like, no, we're not coming into work until we get higher wages. And then you're shutting down the entire ski area because of the, one of the most key cogs to it is gone. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm interested to see, um, what this, what this kind of results in. I, I personally like, again, not knowing tons, I'm, I'm all for it. I think it's a, it's a good way. And I think if they, uh, if they can get better wages and we can get, end up even better ski patrol that are, you know, career ski patrol, that's only going to be better for the ski resorts in the long run. Yeah. Vail, a billion dollar corporation might not make quite as much money and have a little bit more overhead, but ultimately I think for the ski experience, for the individual skier, it's better. So what's, what's the big deal? Yeah. To me, I think it creates better community. Um, and we're supporting our ski patrol. 
Um, but also on Blevins too. This is, we can jump off this talk because we don't have too much to say, but this goes back to a case we talked about a lot. And I think we had a really good debate about. Um, so this was the result of the, the snowboarders that cut the avalanche onto I-70 and who were being prosecuted, um, who ended up in a mistrial because the jury didn't show up. And we were saying like, oh, imagine if it was like civil disobedience. Well, so obviously with a mistrial, it doesn't mean the trial over and there's that free but they did end up having a result um the result was they essentially settled and didn't face any criminal charges um so they got some probation and community service um but weren't fined liable um so they didn't have to pay the $168,000 in damages um and ultimately this article from Jason Blevins kind of goes back to some of the thoughts that we were talking about where uh the CAIC, the Colorado Avalanche Information Center, um, was very in support of the snowboarders because the snowboarders had actually cut the avalanche, took video of it, and submitted to the CAIC their observation. And that observation is what ended up kind of landing them in court. And the CAIC was like, wait, if you prosecute these guys, we're going to all of a sudden not get the uh, a very key component of our forecasting system, which is public public observations. And so um, to see kind of the CAIC in support of the snowboarders was really good. And to see some other backcountry skiers in support of it was really good. And I'm pretty much really glad that nothing truly came of it and they weren't held criminally liable for it. Um, so... That's 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 ended up being the result. There you go, folks. Um, reporting the news, and uh, to to Evan and Tyler, congrats on not having a hundred and sixty eight thousand dollar tab. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think this brings us to UFOs. Yeah, I think we're done with our out. Well, is UFO outdoor news? Oh, totally. That's outdoor news. Absolutely. Have you ever seen? Have you ever seen a UFO inside? No, I have not seen any UFO inside. See, it's my point. There's this kind of amazing article in the New Yorker, and you all should check this out. It's this in-depth article about. UFOs. And I was like, I don't know. I just want to talk about this. So I am declaring that this is suitable for a our reviewing the news uh, topics. But um, mostly I just wanted to be like, hey, Cody, do you believe in UFOs? Yes. <laughs> I believe in a, unidentified flying objects. Well, I, I don't even know. But more than anything, what I find fascinating is like, we started to see this news come out in 2020. Like if I remember it was like April and May of 2020. And all of a sudden it was like the government was like releasing these files, video files from like air force pilots of unidentified flying objects. And the government saying, we don't know what they are. And no one really cared. It was like literally like it felt like the government was trying to distract us like, hey, pandemic, but here's UFOs like we found them. And everyone's like, yeah, I don't care. Like we've got some other shit we're dealing with. So um, but it's been fascinating to see because like one, it points to one of the things like this isn't blowing up like I thought it would. And this article in New Yorker that you write about, like, which I read as well is like, you're like, why is this not like central to like a one on the cover of New York times kind of feeling. And it, to me, it goes points to one, like conspiracy theories. They're just way more fun when it, someone's trying to keep a secret, but then all of a sudden they release the secret and everyone's like, ah, yeah, whatever. I don't care. But then two, it is like, it's like pretty wild that like, 
are we that far ahead as a culture that we're already like, yeah, we already knew. And yeah, we know that you have this stuff and we're, yeah, we think they're out there. I, it's, it's weird. I like, why, why is the government saying right now? Like, yeah, he, here's some stuff. We don't know what they are. I have no idea. Like why now? Yeah. I have no idea. I absolutely believe the thing you just said though, it, that like, I mean, frankly, I think we saw this through the whole Trump administration, right? There was all this stuff that he was just saying out loud where it's like if he hadn't said that, there would have been journalists and people digging to try to discover the hard truth about some of these different meetings and the like. And he would just come up and be like, yeah, this is what's going on. And I think that's the lesson we kind of learned over the last four years but uh, off of that topic, I mean, back to the fact, you know, and I, I have to say, I have never at been, this is almost weird, I guess. I have been like remarkably incurious about like the existence of other life off of this planet. Like if you would ask me, I would have said something like, yeah, the universe is way too big for us to be the only like living creatures here. But then I have no like follow-up curiosity about, so ergo, I definitely hope that we make contact with beings on other planets or they come contact us. Like I just kind of shut down and stop at that point. You know, I mean, UFO, yeah, if the point of view is like, okay, so there's some stuff and we're just not sure what it is. Like on the one hand, well, that's not that big of a deal to say, but this is really ratcheting up to be more like there's stuff that we can identify and it seems wildly high tech. And this might look like the makings of actual contact. <laughs> and you're right. We're just like, yeah, whatever. Um, is the Super Bowl happening this year? Are they doing that? Yeah. I, I, it's, it's wild. I think it's, I think it's cool. I want to see more of it. Um, I, because it is like, you're like, if the government's releasing like footage of some object in front of an air force, like an F-16 or something, and then the thing's going at like, they're like estimating a traveling 400 miles an hour. And then it takes like a hard left at like 700 miles an hour. And they're like, yeah, we don't know what this is. You're like, well, one, they're admitting that that like something out there has a lot more technology and power than we do, which is probably why they'd want to keep stuff secret to begin with. And then too, it's like, is this another government? Is this truly like, are we getting UFOs, like aliens from other planets coming down and observing what we're doing? Like when you really start to think about it, you're like, this is wild. So, um, yeah, I've kind of actually, I've been, I'm fascinated with it. I've been reading every article that's come out about it. And I'm definitely weirded out by the fact that no one else seems to care. <laughs> you know, I told you a little bit about my stance on this. I'm like, yes, the universe is too big for us to be the only folks tooling around. But then I get weirdly sort of incurious. Where are you? I want the like Cody Townsend personal statement on UFOs, other civilizations, etc. Um, I mean, one, there's like, yeah, there's no possible way there's not other life on other planets. So it's just, you know, it is too big. Um, but what that life is, whether it's smart, whether it's, you know, highly just that much more sophisticated, you're like, yeah, you start to narrow down the possibilities. But I did read an article recently talking about, you know, there's this like green zone of where they say an Earth-like planet can live. But then there was this other thing of being like, yeah, no, there's more possibilities than that. 
there's possibilities for non-carbon based life forms that are intelligent. There's, you know, actually when we get into media reviews, I read this book uh, by Andy Weir called the Hail Mary Project. Andy Weir is the guy who read the Martian, wrote the Martian, and he's like a total nerd about this stuff. And he kind of talks about that stuff in there. And it was really fascinating to kind of start to think about, but um, you know, there, there's more possibilities than, than we know. And you start to think really we as humans don't know much at all. And we know like, yeah, there could be civilizations that are millions of years old and they're coming down and checking us out. I'm like, well, these, you know, whether they come down and check us out and be like, you guys are idiots. We're not going to come anywhere near you. Or they are like figured out some sort of space travel where they can travel faster in the speed of light, use wormholes and get here and get out of here and just like keeping tabs on us. Like these are the possibilities. Like you start to go into it. You're like, there's anything possible. Like what is that? And I don't know. I I find it fun to think about. (laughs) I will say I am absolutely not prepared to accept that like we are the smartest creatures in this. (laughs) We do real dumb shit all the time. Like as a planet, let alone me. I've done 10 dumb things today. You know what I mean? So like I, yeah, there's a, there's, there's other life forms out there and I'm pretty sure they're smarter than we are. Yeah. I guess that's my take. You know, other life forms, if you're listening to this, you have an open invitation. If you can talk, you know, dumb it down into like our, you know, our crass English language. Um, Let's have a conversation. And they probably heard this and they're like, no, like we don't need to talk with basically the equivalent of like a worm, you know, (laughs) on the ground. So, so open (laughs) invitation. I just don't, I just don't anticipate that you will accept. So uh, anyway, we should probably get off the UFO thing, but I'm, I'm glad we did it. Yeah, me too. I mean, it's fun to talk about that stuff. It's outdoor news. Yeah, outdoor news. UFOs are outdoor news. We've established that today and people should read the New Yorker article. It's really good. Okay, let's talk about some media stuff. This is going to be kind of your section. You've been you've been mowing through some things. So, um and I want to hear about it. So, why don't you kick us off and I'll, you know, I can say a couple things at the end. So, my media recommendations are all in book form because I have not been watching much TV because when you're on the side of a mountain, you can't watch TV. So I wasn't, I didn't have satellite access to Netflix or anything like that. So I've read a lot of books recently and this is kind of like maybe a potentially a hint for the, for the outcome of the, the project or what happened on the project. Cause I, I actually read seven books uh, recently. Um, and I don't bring books up there. Right? It's all, um, it's all on Kindle, which, um, you know, there was points in a trip where uh, other people didn't bring books and it was very miserable for a very long time. And I'm like, you guys don't to bring a freaking Kindle something because we spent 30 plus hours in this tent. At least like you can read a book. So um, I read uh, seven books up there and I'm not going to go. I like some of them I recommend some of them I don't. So I'm just going to go through them real quick. Very, very deep dive. But Read Black Hawk Down by Mark Bowden, um, which, you know, I kind of rewatched the movie and I was like, I should read the book. Really gnarly book. In what ways? God, it just, I mean, it brings you into the atrocities of war. Like if you want to, you know, you see how it's shaped the way modern warfare is one fought and two are reluctance going for war because of that specific event. And man, like it really just brings you straight into the driver's seat right alongside the guys in the Humvees and, um, in Mogadishu. And it's really gnarly. Like if you want to, you know, 
experience a reality war, read it. Um, when you're on the side of a mountain and you're reading about people's bodies being shredded and you're scared because it's an early mountain, I wouldn't recommend it. I was definitely at points being like, I don't want to be reading about this like death and gore while um, on a gnarly mountain, but really good book. Let me ask you though, I'm always curious, like I've seen the movie, I really appreciated the movie. It never dawned on me to go like, read the book then. So I'm just curious, like, was there any pr particular trigger? Like I get, I think I get really picky with what I read just because like I read slow. Like if I'm going to read something like I'm in it. And so I'm just kind of curious, like what, was there anything specific that led you to like, I'm going to sit down with this or you're just like, I'm going to be, I'm going to have some downtime. Well, I just always know if there's a book about a movie or a book that is the inspiration for a movie, the book's always going to be better and you're going to get more backstory and more details. And just that was like you watch a movie and I will say the movie actually did a pretty damn good job um, of kind of going through this. But I think the book does a really, really good job of of you know, just bringing you into the moment. Um, the one thing I would say the downside of the movie is that like the movie has like every major male star at the time. Like there's so many big A-list celebrities in that movie. And it kind of almost because of that throws you distant to it. Whereas the book brings you into just like the real life that these guys are just like, you know, young American kids because they're that they are that young and sacrificing their lives for a mission that seems maybe good in sort of a way, but also completely useless in a way. And it's just like, it kind of brings you, like it makes you, it brings you to the the reality of war where I watch the movie and you're like, whoa, that's an intense movie. You read the book and you come away with it going like, man, like this is why we shouldn't send kids into wars and send people into these things. Cause it's, it's horrible. Um, so yeah, my take on that. Uh, like I mentioned before, I read the Hail Mary Project by Andy Weir. Kind of wanted something a little lighter. He wrote The Martian. Really fun book. I, if you're a nerd and you liked his books, I recommend it. Um, to talk, it. This actually deals with alien contact in it. And it's really, it's fun. And, you know, he does, he's such a nerd and, and meeting, I think, with biologists and meeting with astrophysicists that you, you kind of learn a little bit along the way while also getting a really good narrative. So is it fiction? Yeah. Full fiction. Okay. Yeah, like he just writes these fictional stories and they deal with in space. So I feel like if you are you're interested in aliens and astrophysics, but you want to sit down on a beach during the, your summer break or on a vacation, read the book. Uh, Fifth Risk by Michael Lewis. Um, that was kind of like it was almost like a celebration of bureaucrats within our in, uh, within our system. Um, that was what it ultimately read like, and it talked about kind of the Trump administration and tearing down bureaucracy and uh, removing experts from it. And it really tells these expert stories of these these kind of almost like heroes within our bureaucracy that do amazing things and don't make much money for it. They can't they don't go into the public sector. If they were in the public sector, they'd be doing a, a, a making a lot more money um, and doing more of a disservice where these people are actually doing a service. It's interesting if you are not a news junkie, it's a good way to kind of get a overview of like what's going on in bureaucracy. Um, you know, kind of it gives you a little bit of hope in some forms of government. It also does show you like, you know, 
the bigness of bureaucracy now can slow things down. Um, I read The Wayfinders by Wade Davis. Um, really fascinating book uh, talking about ancient knowledge um, and uh, indigenous knowledge and some of the ways that colonialism has erased that knowledge and how, um, you know, it's talking about one of the things is the Wayfinders, like uh, Pacific Islanders and their navigation systems and how colonialists and Europeans came and they're like, there's no way you can do this. So there's no way you can travel via small handcrafted raft to islands thousands of miles away and how these navigators can read things like just the the way the ocean looks the way the birds are flying the way the clouds are going i have these subtle subtle details and how this knowledge is passed down not in written form but from through generations in oral form um and this knowledge has been kind of one it's just far more impressive than we've been taught and to how it's been kind of erased. So really, really interesting book and just kind of um, celebrates some indigenous knowledge. Good book, easy book to read, pretty short. Wade Davis is known for some pretty big books. So uh, it was, it was kind of a nice little read. I'd recommend it. Um, the Third Pole by Mark Sinnott. He wrote, uh, Mark Sinnott's a climber out of New Hampshire. He's also a journalist and a writer. And he wrote about Everest, which was kind of his big thing. He stayed away from Everest as a climber his whole career, but then finally goes there. Um, I would say if you are you know, just kind of getting into Everest knowledge, it's a good book to read. If you want to read an even better book about um, Everest, you read uh, Wade Davis, uh, Into the Silence, which almost, this was like a Cliff Notes version of Wade Davis's book, Into the Silence, about Everest. So good book, easy read, liked it. Question. What's your own personal level of interest in Everest? Do you imagine at some point, could you see yourself or would you like to do Everest? If I got invited on a trip and didn't have to pay out of pocket, I would climb Everest and I would climb the north side. And that's where I put it. I don't have any desire to like put together a plan, pay tons of money. I would totally do it guided. I don't care. It's not in my wheelhouse to go for some new line off of it. I, it's just something that, yeah, like if it was offered up to me, sure, I'd go do it. Um, I think it'd be kind of fun and it's the biggest mountain and it'd be a fun challenge in a totally different way. But is my, my, I mean, I'm still a skier at, at heart. Um, I kind of reaffirmed that on St. Elias. I like skiing. Um, and, uh, ultimately like climbing Everest, like if I'm going to do a guy, if I'm going to do it unguided, then yeah, it'd be about skiing lines, but I don't really necessarily have a huge desire to ski Everest. So, um, that's where I lie with it. I'm a little indifferent, but if I got invited on the right trip, someone paid my way and it was with a, with a guided group. Sure. Why not? Sounds fun. Okay. That's your Everest stance. All right. I'm so impressed with your reading. I feel put to shame here, but uh, keep going. I think we got two other two other titles for you to tell us about. Yeah. So then, uh, the adventure of the invention of nature. Um, uh, it's about Alexander von Humboldt, um, who pretty much every. Humboldt you see in the world was named after Alexander von Humboldt. And he was considered one of the first, uh, I would say, European um, 
kind of naturalists, um, environmentalists. He kind of mentions climate change, and this is in uh, the late 1700s. And, um, you know, so it's a really interesting book, but it also, like, one of the things that kind of pissed me off about it was, like, you're reading this and you're celebrating Alexander von Humboldt and all this knowledge of the natural world that he's bringing to European society. But it also, like, I would say if you read that book, you have to read about um, like Native American knowledge of in, in the environment, like go read braiding sweetgrass alongside of this. And you can kind of see how shallow this is. You're like, it was like Europeans discovered nature 200 years ago, 300 years ago. And you're like, big deal. Um, but it is interesting when you put it in that context of like, yeah, like this, this connection with nature, we had, we as like European society have moved so far away from nature that you had to have this guy like Alexander von Humboldt rediscover it and rebring up these ideas to actually create preservation and conservation within uh, a world that was getting rapidly industrialized and rapidly explored by uh, uh, Europeans and colonialists. So um, it's good. And I just say you got to read more to get the context of it because Alexander von Humboldt was by no way, no means the like inventor of any of this stuff. And that's where I had a problem with the invention of nature. Nature. You're like it was the invention of nature for Europeans, <laughs> not not for the rest of the world. He does mention in there um, some of the there is some um, meeting of indigenous cultures in like Peru and in the Amazon, and him mentioning how much deeper their knowledge of the wild is than his. So it acknowledges that. But um, interesting book. La and then my last book, uh, The Last Dance by Martin Shoemaker. Um, it was a space book and it was on the dollar ninety nine or ninety nine cent sale rack on, uh, on the Kindle uh, sale rack. Yeah, yeah, totally. They have that. And I was like, oh, I already bought, bought like eight bucks. I'm gonna just buy a cheap one. Uh, I don't recommend it. Don't don't buy off the sale rack. Maybe it's not very good. So that was the, the I would say, yeah, go ahead up with any of those, but uh, The Last Dance, but not The Last Dance, but. Also, it's not the book of the documentary about the Chicago Bulls. Yeah, no, I know. I, I wish I could say that I bought it thinking that it was that, but I knew it wasn't. But that would have been a more funny story if I was like, cool, this is going to be a really in-depth book about Michael Jordan. And then it's a space book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's about space. Wow, you covered you covered the gamut. I'm, I'm very impressed. Apparently, I need to spend more time in a tiny little tent on a mountainside. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I have been up to some things. A couple that I'll share. One, we, you and I often mention the Bill Simmons podcast, and there was an interview that he did. It was, I think, I think it was in earlier this month in June with Adam Duritz, who is the lead singer of The Counting Crows. Now, for the youngins out there, I actually have no idea if, say, anybody 20 years old or younger has even heard of the Counting Crows um, or if they're having a kind of like, if Counting Crows has like, like, it always cracks me up that apparently young people love the show Friends. Like that has had a total resurgence and I'm still kind of like, Ugh. why? Yeah, I get the, I get the office, but Friends, man, that show is garbage. Yeah, but I will say, my my thing with the Counting Crows, I used to say things like when they dropped that their album August and everything after, I think that's still an amazing album and one of the best kind of first albums of all time. 
so that's my take on the Counting Crows. But the the incredible thing about this conversation with Adam Duritz, and one of the remarkable things about his life is, this is a more or less normal dude who like got hit by the fame train in a way that I think very few people in modern society have ever had the fame thing like like a light switch get turned on overnight. And a lot of this conversation is it does, you know, Adam is definitely a quirky guy and I think he's a pretty interesting songwriter, but for the most part it's kind of like that quirky guy that you're kind of friends with or acquaintances with and you see him at the bar sometimes. And it's like if that guy you sort of know became like one of the most famous people in the world overnight. You know, and he talks about it. And it was just really interesting hearing a person talk about if you just became intensely, insanely famous overnight, this is what your life now looks like. And turns out, like, it's a real trip and some of it's really hard to deal with. And you don't want this. You don't want this. And so anyway, I thought it was really interesting for some of those reasons. So if you want to hear what it's like to be absolutely steamrolled by overnight fame, Bill Simmons podcast interview with Adam Duritz of The Counting Crows. The book I want to talk about, which ironically, this book that really has kind of knocked me back comes out today. And it is a book called Ultra, and it is by this Italian former male model turned arguably the best current ultra runner in the world. His name is Michaela Gralia, and I actually just did a two-part conversation with him on our Off the Couch podcast. So part two actually literally, I think, just went live while Cody, you and I were talking. I knew a little bit about Michaela before reading the book, I'm not lying. Like it really kind of knocked me back and like left a mark more so than anything that I've read. I don't know, maybe in the last couple of years. And it's a really interesting story just from a biographical point of view. Like he grows up in this little town in Italy and ends up in Miami to kind of further the family floral business gets discovered by like the director of a top modeling agency. And then like his life just goes bonkers, 180 different from what he was up to. And, you know, from there, he then he's 37 years old now. And, you know, he last year, the last running of the Moab 240, he won that. He's won Badwater 135. He's won the, the Yukon Arctic Ultra. He's got world records for, you know, crossing the Gobi Desert. And so you have clearly an intense person who has lived a disciplined life, but gotten like the twists and turns of this story. But ultimately what this is, is it's a book about human potential, full stop. And he even says early in the book, he's like, this isn't a book about running. I don't actually really care about running. But he kind of did this thing where he looks at these intense, extreme long distance races as a kind of petri dish 
to do experiments in the exploration of human limits. So honestly, I, 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 um, I really, I've said this on our podcast, but I'm like, I just don't know who I think could read this book and not find themselves pretty tempted to change something about their life or to kind of take a new perspective and some, some capacity on the world. So it's really interesting. And it's one of those books that I've, you know, I'm really, I love the conversation that I have with Michaela and, um, I just kind of keep thinking about this thing and have already made certain concrete changes, you know, just in my own day-to-day disciplines based on this. So, yeah. Oh, it sounds fascinating. I, the, the only thing I can say to it, and I want to, I do want to read it, but there was this, well, growing up in Santa Cruz, um, and growing up with a lot of professional surfers, there was this weird thing that came out a long time where all these professional surfers were on the back end, secretly male models. And it was really, it's like started, there's, uh, I remember it was like really weird when this like hardcore, super gnarly, like in your face local. And then you were like, why has he gone for three months? He was like, he was been modeling in Europe for the last three months. And you're like, so it's interesting the the world of male modeling and how many athletes do it. So I, I do want to read this. It sounds really, really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, really, really interesting guy. He's got, I mean, Badwater is coming up in just a few weeks and he'll be running it again and and has potentially some, well, let me just say, and then he announces an upcoming project that he's, you know, on our conversation, he said he hadn't talked about it, but he's up to some really interesting stuff. And I, I am here for anybody that is interested in any capacity interested in that experiment of like, what can we do as humans? How far can we go? And let me see about doing some things that we used to think just wasn't possible. And uh, he's one of those people. And um, yeah, the book I think is tremendous. And if you're curious, you know, check out our conversation first. But uh, I really hope a lot, a lot of people read that book. So... My last thing, I just had this amazing conversation the other day with an author, Doug Chadwick. He and I just talked and it was so lovely to get to talk to him and get to know him a bit. He is a renowned wildlife biologist. He's got a book coming out called Four Fifths of Grizzly. I'm going to have Doug on the podcast in a couple weeks, but um, you know, sometimes you just meet somebody and you're like, I'm so happy to just have made this point of contact and Doug is one of these guys and he has been doing hardcore, serious, good work in the realm of wildlife biology for decades. And, uh, it was just a pleasure to, to meet him. And, um, I'm digging into the book now and you guys will get to hear a conversation with him coming up. Yeah. That's just, just putting that on the radar. The book's not out yet, um, but should be in the next like week or two. And I'll let you all know what I think of it, but, but a pleasure to meet Douglas or Doug Chadwick, look him up and you'll see uh, quite an impressive resume of titles. So that's what I got. Cool. Um, I look forward to checking that out. I didn't listen to that podcast, so I'll go back and back and to listen to it. I'd actually be really curious to get, just given everything you're up to and kind of thinking about, I think you're going to be intrigued. So 
Anyway. Sweet. Well, yeah, I got to get going. I got to, you know, my summer of World of Warcraft awaits. Um, so I got a, I got a big game here. No, actually, I got an interview a marketing candidate for our kids. So um, I got to get there and, uh, and go do that. But it's been a pleasure to talk with you. We'll try and maybe bump these up a little bit and wait a couple of weeks and uh, keep, uh, keep doing these through the summer. I know. I, I was kind of thinking, so this we're recording June 22nd. We're going to probably put this out tomorrow, June 23rd. If we put another one out beginning of August and kind of cover July for that one, I think that's kind of, we'll try to get back on track that way, but I don't know, or maybe there'll be a ton of news and we'll need to come back sooner than that. Who knows? We'll, we'll figure it out. But hey, man, great to see you. Glad you made it back safe. We'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Good to chat. Take care, everybody. See ya. Bye. Well, that is going to wrap up this edition of the Blister Podcast. I hope you all enjoyed the conversation. And Cody and I really will try to like get back on schedule now, which should be easier with his schedule getting back on schedule a bit. So we're looking forward to that. And then tomorrow, over on our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast feed, remember, Bikes versus Skis This will be the third edition we've done of this. Part one drops tomorrow, and it's actually a really fun and pretty thought-provoking conversation, if I do say so myself. So anyway, check that out tomorrow, and take good care, and we will talk to you again over on our Bikes and Big Ideas podcast. Bye, everybody.